Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. In the NOCO is supported by Blue Federal Credit Union, with locations from Denver to Cheyenne, helping members tap into the power of community. More information at bluefcu.com. Today on KUNC's Colorado Edition. If you ask people what the biggest concern facing democracy is today, many would answer a rise in misinformation flooding the public sphere. Social media has even been referred to as a dumpster fire of venom, misinformation, and conspiracy theories about the 2020 election, COVID-19 vaccines, and other hot-button topics. In just a moment, we'll talk with a professor who studies the intersection of politics and media to learn more about what misinformation is and what we can do to combat it. It's Wednesday, May 11th. I'm Erin O'Toole, and you're listening to Colorado Edition from KUNC. Before we get to the main topic, I want to give you a quick update on a story we covered last Friday about a group of workers voting to unionize at a Starbucks store on Colfax in Denver called The Barn. On Tuesday, the National Labor Relations Board announced that their effort was successful. If you missed that conversation with journalist Nick Bolin, you can catch up with Friday's episode at KUNC.org. These days, pretty much anyone with an internet connection can create false or misleading content that then spreads like wildfire to reach millions of people. The rising flood of inflammatory rhetoric and false information is so concerning that the Department of Homeland Security recently announced the creation of a disinformation governance board to combat it. That news quickly prompted a backlash from many Republicans who compare it to the Ministry of Truth from George Orwell's novel 1984. Misinformation is an insidious issue that communities and local newsrooms here in northern Colorado are wrestling with, especially with the midterm elections less than six months away. Dominic Stetsua is an assistant professor of political science at Colorado State University. He joins me now to talk about what we can do about misinformation. Dominic, thanks for being here. Thank you. Give us a brief definition of disinformation, misinformation, fake news. What are we talking about when we talk about this? It's a great question, deceptively simple question that's actually very useful because in the public sphere right now, a lot of these terms tend to operate interchangeably and, and they're very much are not, right? So fake news kind of gained prominence in 2015, 2016 uh, during the, the presidential election. And it has since been kind of co-opted as a kind of like a partisan insult, right? So I think a more useful way to think about it is like what we're talking about in general is, is the information disorder. And by information disorder, scholars mean essentially things that are kind of wrong with our information environment. And there's kind of three key terms that play a part there, misinformation, disinformation, and malinformation. So misinformation is essentially content that is false, but it is being shared and created and distributed without the intent of kind of harming or misinforming anybody. So it's essentially people who are sharing things or saying things on social media, and then that information is being shared, which they believe to be true, but it is not. So there's no kind of intent to harm there. This information is made up information that has the intent to harm, right? It is created specifically 
for the purpose of deceiving somebody, for lying to somebody uh, in order to elicit a certain behavior, attitude, uh, etc. And then of course, there's also mal information, which is truthful information, but it is shared in a way that intends to uh, harm something like our democracy, like essentially move people towards a particular position, persuade them to, to a, like kind of reach a specific goal that they wouldn't otherwise. So for example, when the kind of Hillary Clinton emails emerged in, in 2016, the information contained in the leak was true, right? It was just stolen, hacked information. But the way it was packaged and the, the goals that uh, were driving the people who were sharing uh, that information in a particular way was to kind of harm the Clinton campaign and ultimately, you know, lower the trust in one, one of the candidates and sway the election. The information disorder, in other words, doesn't need to just be made up things that have the intent to harm, right? There's different layers there. There's all kinds of information that we're talking about here. It doesn't just need to look like made up news sources, right? It can be gossip, it can be conspiracy theories. It can be all of these kinds of things, memes, et cetera, that, that we all see online every day. Yeah, it almost sounds like a spectrum of misinformation based on its intent. Exactly, intent is a crucial factor. Stuff doesn't just need to be factually incorrect or false to be used for nefarious reasons, right? So it's kind of that kind of we're getting into the, the good old fashioned kind of propaganda territory there as well, right? So all of these things kind of used in a wrong way, used in a more nefarious way, have like kind of negative consequences for, for our democracy. What is the impact of misinformation or disinformation on people's perceptions of topics like science or vaccines, to use a, a recent example. Is this persuasive? I mean, does it change people's minds? So the reality is more complex than it frequently gets portrayed. We, we tend to have this belief that just because a piece of information exists out there, then it somehow has a super powerful effect on people out there. Actually, scholars have a name for it. It's called the third person effect. And it's this idea that you yourself might not think that you will be persuaded by something, but other people are much more gullible than you, and they're definitely going to be persuaded. So I think it's a useful, useful idea to understand when we think about the effects of these things. Much like any other form of information, misinformation, disinformation matters. It plays a role in terms of shaping our attitudes, shaping our beliefs, and, and even shaping our actions, like whether to take the COVID vaccine, for example. But just because one is exposed to one particular, for example, false story, or just because they listened to one questionable interview um, that somebody did with like Joe Rogan on his podcast, doesn't mean that 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 persuaded them, right? So we need to remember that there's a kind of supply and the demand there. Some people want this kind of things, want this kind of content because they're predisposed to believe it in the context of a pandemic, especially. Pandemic was, and still is, scary. And especially if you put yourself back in early 2020, you know, February, March, when we're just trying to learn what's going on exactly, how it's going to impact us. Nobody really had all the answers, even the experts. Some people have a very strong psychological need to have simple answers, and they don't trust kind of more complex, nuanced 
explanations. So they're just more drawn to a particular set of answers that in that context tend to be the more harmful things. Some people have these predispositions that they don't trust the elites and they kind of view the world as this competition between the average person and, and the powerful elites and, and they're kind of getting the, the short end of the stick. So when, when you're more populist, you're not really going to find experts uh, convincing because experts are part of the elites, right? They're part of the problem. They're the ones who are the nefarious actors who are kind of meddling in our lives. So when we talk about misinformation and disinformation and its effect, we have to understand it through the prism of all of these different considerations, all of the different predispositions that kind of every user of the information environment brings to the table. And also the fact that, you know, sometimes just because you see one story is not going to do it, right? Like you need repeated exposure, just like with everything else that doesn't necessarily happen with misinformation, right? You, you might see like a viral meme or tweet or whatever that is a piece of disinformation. But if that's just like a one-off thing, then you know, it's unlikely to have made a huge impact on you. But if you're kind of bombarded with, with the same kind of theme of misinformation on a specific topic, then it's, you know, it's going to be much more likely to influence you because you just consumed a lot more. It's more of a top of mind consideration for you. And it's more likely to kind of make an impact on you. Great. Now, misinformation isn't a new issue, although, of course, the Internet makes spreading it so much easier. What did misinformation look like in the past before we had YouTube and social media? Right. And I think that's that's another that's a that's a great point. You know, we frequently think of these things as if it started in 2016, where these topics have been with us from the beginning of the Republic. Benjamin Franklin would publish made up fabricated stories in this newspaper that he published in Philadelphia. Henry Ford, who used to control the Dearborn Independent, used to essentially use it as a mouthpiece to spew all kinds of anti-Semitic, vile, you know, propaganda, like almost Nazi level propaganda, really. He, uh, you know, so these things were with us as long as we've been a country. The difference now is that it just kind of changes the cost structure, right? It used to be costly for you to disseminate misinformation and disinformation. It used to be difficult for you to form a community. It used to be difficult for you to have a voice. You might have needed to uh, have some sort of a mailing list, right? Maybe have a booth outside and recruit people with, with flyers. Now, you have the internet and you have the social media where you are, can find like-minded people very easily. And all the things that make social media great in terms of the ability for us to find, you know, to connect with each other, to find people, that also works for these other voices, right? So when we talk about the media, the social media uh, specifically being this, this force that essentially allow gives gives a voice to the historically marginalized groups, which I think many people agree is, is a good thing, that also has this other more nefarious side to it, where it does give the megaphone to these other marginalized groups, uh, groups that were marginalized for a reason, because they were very conspiratorial, or maybe because they were neo-Nazis. It makes it easier to connect with like-minded people, and that works for all kinds of people. I'm wondering how we can, as a community, address the impacts of misinformation, while at the same time balancing freedom of speech, because that is also important. Sure. 
And I think that's a very difficult and obviously contentious issue to grapple with. I think the first thing that is worth remembering is that the fact that we have misinformation on these platforms is not necessarily a thing that kind of leads to our democracy and our politics being more toxic, but the other way around, right? Like we, we've seen these processes happen for decades and now with social media, they kind of manifest themselves with things like misinformation and disinformation. So it's part of the broader culture wars, part of the broader kind of contentiousness of politics. We're distrustful of each other. We're distrustful of institutions, especially institutions that historically have been tasked with kind of creating knowledge. So the media, universities, scientists, that has been going on for, for decades, right? That's not a new phenomenon. When we think back to 2016 and we think back to kind of Russian interference in the election and, and what the kind of trolls from Russia were doing, they didn't create these divisions, right? They just poured gasoline on a fire. So I think it's worth remembering that as we think about solutions, because, you know, there's certain steps we can take to address some of the concerns surrounding information disorder. But to really get to the bottom of the issue, uh, requires fixing our politics, which is much more a complex task. So some of the things we can do, you know, there, there's kind of different layers. The first layer is what platforms can do. And platforms can design social media to kind of slow us down so that we don't feed into our kind of partisan urges of kind of sharing the most kind of hyper-partisan content. So uh, little prompts that pop up, like, are you sure you want to share this before reading the article? These things have been demonstrated to, to have an effect in randomized control trials. So these things work. We have data to back it up and platforms are implementing them. So I think these are good and fairly low cost solutions. They're not politically contentious. The more contentious things are any idea surrounding any kind of government-imposed moderation. I think these things are obviously the most politically charged. It is essentially impossible to moderate that space without it adding fuel to the fire of some of our partisan divisions. A lot of conservatives are convinced that social media have like a liberal bent and they're being censored. And actually articulating that in a form of, for example, the new Department of Homeland Security has a disinformation board that has triggered a lot of these things. Now, whether like on the merits, that advisory board might be great, but what that will end up being will be just a tool in the culture wars. And that will ultimately have negative effects for our politics, for our trust, et cetera. So I think I'm, I'm skeptical. Of, of the kind of government-imposed moderation policies. I think even the most well-intentioned laws, like in Germany, there's a fake news law that passed in 2017. You know, it had the best intentions of trying to eliminate misinformation and disinformation from platforms like Facebook. And essentially, if platforms don't remove certain things in a timely fashion, uh, they face uh, fine. But these laws essentially have been very heavily criticized by, by human rights groups, by uh, freedom of speech groups that highlight how they definitely stifle speech. And they have been used as a blueprint by authoritarian regimes to essentially pass similar laws that are more or less de facto aimed at censoring pro-democracy voices in countries like Russia or Philippines. 
So thinking through any kind of legislated effort will, like, I just have a hard time seeing that solving anything without creating way more problems than, than it solves. So I think that leaves us with, with kind of what can we do as, as citizens? And I think we, we're not helpless. I think information environment is much more complex than it used to be. And, you know, I study the media and politics and I, I frequently see sources I've never seen before. There's definitely a lot of information out there. We're, we're drowning in information. Some of it is good, some of it is bad. There are tools that we can use to help us guide us towards better sources. So there's like browser plugins like NewsGuard, there's other organizations by, that were put together by scholars and, and experts who, who kind of help people navigate the information environment and give them a little more tools. I think it's good to be aware of your own biases, knowing that you know, we all come to the table with a certain set of beliefs. So you know, getting outside of our comfort zone, seeing, having like a balanced diet. And when something seems kind of crazy or or too good to be true then like it probably is right so you know triangulating making sure you research something if something's particularly controversial or or strikes you as unlikely it probably is and it's good to just google it see if other reliable sources are reporting on it and and do your due diligence like that and then finally rely on good local news um a lot of our politics are toxic because they focus on national culture wars, but local news are still trusted and they still give you good information about your community. And using local news is just a good way to kind of avoid the the national level polarizing things and focusing on on things in your community that, that really matter to your life as well. Not to say that national politics doesn't matter, obviously it does. But, but really focusing and going out of your way to consume reliable local news, it's a good first step. Dominic Stetsua is an assistant professor of political science at CSU. He'll be part of a virtual panel discussing misinformation this Thursday afternoon. It's hosted by the CSU Center for Public Deliberation in partnership with the No-Code Deliberative Journalism Project. It is free and open to the public. If you'd like to attend, you'll find a link to register in the show notes or at KUNC.org. That's it for today on Colorado Edition. Our executive producer is Sean Corcoran. Webb is edited by Digital Operations Manager Ashley Jeffcoat. Our theme music was composed by Colorado musicians Brianna Harris and Johnny Burroughs. I'm Erin O'Toole. Thank you so much for listening. I'll be back Friday with more of what's happening in Northern Colorado.